It's not just law schools and law students. If law firms want people that are going to be successful, if law departments want people that are going to be successful, it's important that they do some training of these folks. So um, that means getting serious about what kind of skills they want people to have when they're there. And, and I don't mean just traditional law skills. I don't just mean the, the legal writing and the ability to do an interview. I mean the technical skills and the ability to be creative. I'm Chad Ming, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law, where each week we'll talk to a different mover or shaker in the legal and technology field. We'll learn a little about them, what they've been up to, and hopefully get some real-world tips that will help lawyers better use technology in their legal practices. For this episode, we head to Suffolk University Law School in Boston and talk to Gabe Tenenbaum about legal tech education. Gabe's the director of the school's Institute on Legal Innovation and Technology, He's also a legal writing professor and holds positions at Harvard and Yale. So, the main takeaway from today's show is going to be that Gabe's a very smart guy and has a lot going on. But before I could even talk to him about his work in the legal field, I had to talk to him about the first job he got right out of college. It's a really interesting job and not a job that you'll find on a lot of lawyers' resumes. When I came out of college, I was interested in doing some sort of service work, and I ended up serving the U.S. Secret Service for a couple of years. It's sort of an interesting time. So I was there in uh, from 99 to 02, and so I served under two presidents. I was in the Boston field office and uh, got sort of a firsthand look at history, for, for better or for worse. And uh, it was really, it was a great experience. Glad to have done it. What were you doing specifically? I was in the Boston field office and I was assigned to the protection squad. So that meant that um, the squad protected foreign dignitaries that came to Boston. And a lot of my work was getting ready for visits. Sometimes that meant um, making sure literally the equipment was ready for visits. Other time it meant um, going out with others and interviewing people that had made threats to make sure that they um, weren't going to do anything bad. After Gabe left the Secret Service, he got involved in the legal world. He started as a paralegal in a Boston law firm and took night classes at Suffolk Law School. When he got his degree, the firm hired him as a litigation associate. But there was something at Suffolk that was pulling him back. Gabe left the practice of law and was hired by the school to teach legal writing. Ultimately, his responsibilities came to include oversight of the school's legal tech program. I was hired as a uh, legal writing professor, and over time, my responsibilities have morphed pretty significantly. But legal writing, you know, it, it's interesting. I tell people I'm interested in the things that are um, uh, very, very easy to automate and the things that are very, very difficult to automate, right? So I really like things like expert systems and document assembly and, and, and coding on the one end, but I'm also quite interested in things like creativity and empathy and uh, how people make judgments. So legal writing is sort of on one end of the spectrum for the most part, the, the stuff that's hard to emulate with computers. And I became increasingly interested with the computerized stuff over time. And um, the shift in my responsibilities has, has uh, gone along with it. When did legal tech become an emphasis at Suffolk in, in earnest? Uh, in 2013, we launched uh, a program that I now run. The, the founding member was Andy Perlman, who's now our dean, was then you know, a workaday uh, professor teaching uh, professional responsibility and other topics. And he went to our then dean, Camille Nelson, who's now at American University in DC and said, look, you know, th this is where I think things are moving. I, I think we should start this program. So in 2013, we started this concentration and the concentration has been growing ever since. The official name for Suffolk's legal tech program is the Legal Innovation and Technology Institute. The Institute is divided into three programs. For the law students at Suffolk, there's an academic concentration on legal tech. There's also a lit lab that students participate in that helps legal aid organizations. And finally, there's an online program open to legal professionals where they can earn a legal tech certificate. 
the parent organization is the Legal Innovation and Technology Institute, and that has a board of outside advisors who are prominent um, people from the legal industry who have helped us shape this program. And it involves some student-centered things, including an academic concentration. It's like, a, uh, you know, you might have had an undergrad major. You can have a law school major in, in legal innovation and technology. And there's a set of courses and experiences that go with that. So the students that are in the concentration take um, about half a dozen courses. They get an internship in legal tech. They do some research in legal tech. And they get this this certificate along with their their JD. We also have a legal tech student association, which is just for students generally interested in legal tech. Uh, many of whom are in the concentration, but not necessarily. And there there are over a hundred hundred students in that group, and they run events. One of the really interesting events that we had not long ago was uh, a design thinking event that Liberty Mutual Insurance, which is a huge Massachusetts based company, sponsored. So going back to the the law school program. Um, you said it's kind of like a a major or an emphasis for law students. What classes are they required to take as a law student to get the legal tech emphasis? There are three classes that all students in the concentration have to take. So one is called Lawyering in an Age of Smart Machines, which is a class about using software to be more efficient in legal practice. And that was pioneered by Mark Lauritsen, who um, is um, you know someone who's mentored me, and he was a pioneer in document assembly work and, and remains at the center of that scene. And he created that class and actually ultimately handed it to me. The second one is called 21st Century Legal Profession. That's all about new business models for uh, the delivery of legal services. So basically, it teaches people how to do everything to make money in the legal business except for how to bill hours or do a contingent fee. And then the third required course is process improvement and project management. All the students who complete the course get a yellow belt in legal lean sigma, which is terrific. You know, I mean, we, we've had students actually get a job, uh, a career just on the strength of having that additional resume line. So those are the three core classes. And then there is a, um, set of probably 25 different electives that students can choose from. Not everyone's offered every semester, but they're all offered during the student's uh, time here. And they're everything from small firm law practice management to doing things like um, being a clinical innovation fellow in our uh, clinics, uh, you know, rather than a traditional clinic where all eight of the students just are, you know, student public defenders, we now have a ninth student attached to them who does a 50% caseload doing the traditional work and a 50% caseload doing innovation work for the clinic, making the clinic work more efficiently as if it's a law firm. So these are all the sorts of experiences that students can get. And there's they're wide ranging. I mean, they they every sort of stripe of student interest because, you know, a lot of the students see the value in legal innovation and technology, but they say, well, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to go be a government lawyer. Well, there are things you can do as a government lawyer that will help you with the skill. Other people say, you know, I don't know if I want to be a practicing lawyer. I might want to be a HR uh, executive, or I might want to be an entrepreneur. Well, we have classes that will help you in that space too. So the concentration for the law students, you said there's also a internship piece. What types of internships are they doing? All sorts of internships. They've been fascinating. So uh, General Electric just moved to town. They have a really powerful legal ops group. We've placed several students at GE. Uh, we have a number of students who have gone to work at legal tech startups. There are a number, you know, just because there's such a, a tech emphasis in Boston, there are a number of really interesting startups that are in town. So one interesting one is Exari, E-X-A-R-I. They're just down the street, and they do um, data analytics on, on contracts, and they um, do... Um, they pull clauses from contracts using specialized software. We've sent a number of students there. And then the other thing we've done is 
We have sent students to law firms and government agencies and law departments who have said, look, we want to do something that requires tech savvy. We want to do document assembly and we need someone to set up the system or we want to insert Clio and and start using that more meaningfully and we'll send students off. And as long as their role requires them to use tech skills or do something innovative, it qualifies for the internship. As noted earlier, Suffolk has a lit lab that pairs students with legal aid programs. And what the students basically provide is legal R&D work to help the legal programs more efficiently use their resources. We have a new uh, uh, project called the Lit Lab, Legal Innovation and Technology Lab, which is run by a man named David Colarusso, who we fished away from the local public defender's office. David's um, a data scientist. He's worked as a professional computer programmer and as a trial attorney for for the public defender. And he is putting all that together in um, sort of a research and development group that has students working on real live projects for real live clients. So if you were a legal aid organization and said, look, you know, we, we want to be smarter about how we use our resources, you would go to the Lit Lab and they would uh, do a, a, a data science project to help you uh, be more efficient. If you needed some software developed, you would go to the Lit Lab and they would help you develop it. So they have a number of clients. And of course, it's David leading a team of students. Finally, the third part of the Suffolk Legal Innovation and Technology Institute is the online legal tech certificate program offered to legal professionals who want to learn more about the way technology is changing the law. Gabe says the inspiration for the offering was being asked by people multiple times at presentations and events as to how they could learn more about legal tech and employing process improvement principles in their own work. The newest thing we have is uh, a online legal tech certificate for people who are out in the field. So one of the interesting things that happened over time was that, you know, as I would go around the country talking about what we do here, because we were one of the first and we're still one of the biggies or there are some other great programs now, but we've spent a lot of time helping people to see what we're doing and to encourage them to do likewise. The most common question from lawyers, law librarians, other legal professionals is, how can I do that? Where can I learn these things? If I want to you know, know, know how to code and apply it to the law, or if I want to do process improvement and project management and know specifically how to apply it in the law, where do I do that? And we developed this online certificate program as the answer to that. So the program, um, which is at legaltechcertificate.com, if, if you want to check it out, is an online program for legal professionals, not just lawyers, but anyone who's dedicated their career to law to learn these things that we teach here. And you can learn it online in your own time in an environment that that is going to best suit professionals. Is there a prerequisite that you need to be a paralegal lawyer or have a job or interest in the law? So the expectation is that people would be involved in the legal field, um, but you certainly don't need to be a lawyer. And actually, one of the reasons we started this was because there are all these really talented people in the delivery of legal services who aren't lawyers who are wondering what's next for them. So law librarians are the perfect example, right? You have these people who are highly trained, they're highly educated, they're highly motivated to to work in important roles in law firms or law departments, and their job's going away, right? So no one needs them to stuff pocket parts anymore. No one really needs help with the Westlaw. So what does this person do for the next 25 years? And we think the perfect way to help them into the next space is for them to become sort of their organization's legal innovation technology point person. If you have any interest in the Legal Tech Certificate Program, I strongly recommend you check it out. It has a pretty strong faculty.
So we have people like um, Lucy Basley, who's, you know, the legal ops bigwig who used to be at Microsoft. We have Jordan Furlong, who, you know, from from uh, um, Law 21, probably Canada's leading legal technologist. We have Bob Taylor from Liberty Mutual. Uh, we have Erica Rickard, who's at uh, Harvard Law School. We have Catherine McDonough, who is a process improvement project management expert. We have Mary Juton, who is a business of law expert. And all of those people who are around the country and around the world are going to offer these courses. Again, they're online and they're asynchronous which is to say you don't have to be online at 6 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. You take the courses uh, in your own time over the, the cycle of the class. And then there's live touch time. There's um, you know um, live hours, live office hours for the, the faculty. When someone completes the six courses, they've earned the legal tech certificate. And the classes are things like one class called Legal Tech Toolkit, which teaches people to use the hands-on stuff to actually use software. We have a course called Design Thinking for Legal Professionals. We have a process improvement, legal project management. So there are classes to get people from sort of the, the, the way law was once practiced to the way that it is starting to morph into being practiced. We'll get back to my talk with Gabe in just a few minutes. And before I forget, Gabe sends around a weekly legal tech newsletter that's really good called Lawtomatic. If you want to subscribe, there'll be a link to do so on the episode page at tlpodcast.com. Now it's time in the podcast for our segment where I sit down with a legal tech founder. Today we're talking to Rick Merrill, the founder of Gavalytics. That's an AI-powered database with insight about judges. Rick, thanks for your time today. So tell us a little bit about Gavalytics. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me. Gavalytics is a state court judicial analytics software service, and that's a bit of a mouthful, but basically what we do is we tell litigators what state court judges do and why. And uh, the way we do that is we've we've spent uh, a bunch of years and millions of dollars um, on aggregating litigation records from uh, a whole bunch of different state court um, jurisdictions, uh, mostly here in California, soon uh, in other states as well. And we've aggregated this very, very messy data set uh, of records, and we've built out a team of software engineers and data scientists who've written uh, really, really sophisticated artificial intelligence software that reads this huge morass of state court uh, records. And then we've discovered really interesting patterns and judicial tendencies and that sort of thing. And we put all of that into an easy-to-use software package where lawyers can very quickly determine if a judge is good or bad for their client, if a judge uh, likes or dislikes a particular type of motion or a particular type of case or a, a particular type of party, um, and so on. The, the product does a, a whole bunch of different things, but really at a high level, what it is, is an insight engine. It gives you insights that were never before available into state court judges, um, and specifically what they do and why, down to the level of individual motion practice. And just recently, we've added a number of really interesting things. Uh, one is we added uh, arbitrators. And so to the extent that your arbitrator is a retired Superior Court judge, which um, at least here in Los Angeles is a, a very common path. Uh, to the extent that your arbitrator is a retired judge, we have all of their data from when they were on the bench. And so we can tell you what that arbitrator used to be like while they were a judge. So the value there is obvious. Instead of just guessing about about what your arbitrator is likely to be like, you can instead infer that, well, if this person was very defense-friendly and like granting summary judgment motions and so on, while they were on the bench, the odds are high that that person is still that way as an arbitrator. So we do that. 
Another thing that we did that uh, litigators are, are very fond of right now is we added a searchable trial court order database. And so we right now have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of actual trial court orders from uh, various courts from around California, and we've put them into a database where lawyers can um, can search under a particular judge's name or a particular motion type. And what's the backstory behind Gavalytics? What inspired you to create the company? Yeah, great question. I get asked that a lot. So I'm a former litigator. I come from the big law firm world. I spent about six and a half years at Greenberg Trorig uh, here in Los Angeles. And I was a real estate litigator. And so most of um, my practice group's litigation was in state court as opposed to federal court. And uh, here in California, state courts can be a little bit of the Wild West. You know, it's not like an Article III uh, judge, um, you know, that you get at the federal district court where they generally are, are pretty bright and have to be confirmed by the Senate and, and all this. You, you don't <laughs> obviously get that for state court. And, and although I'm sure most judges mean well, you really don't know what you're going to get. Their rulings can be all over the map. Um, they, some are bright, some are not bright, and everything in between. Some are fast, some are slow. And litigators know these things based on just intuition or experience, but you only know them really at best at an anecdotal level. And so you end up just sort of litigating in front of Judge A um, in the same way that you would in front of Judge B, even though Judge A and B might be radically different from one another in terms of their judicial philosophy or their preference for certain types of parties or certain types of motions. And so that that has real-world consequences. And so for me in, in my litigation career, we had two cases go to trial uh, in my six years at, at Greenberg, and um, and neither case went our way at the trial court level. We we could not have lost worse. Um, and these were these were bench trials. And it occurred to me that it might not have been that bad. We might not have lost at all if we'd known more about the judge. Um, you know, we could have perhaps uh, gotten a new judge if we determined early on that this was not a good judge for our, our case or client. We could have perhaps settled the case if we had known that the judge was likely to be hostile to us at trial. And so. You know, there's this whole cascading decision tree that you can you can think about or, or run through if you have information about the judge. If you don't, then you just have to litigate as if you're litigating in front of a machine, you know, that's just unknowable and this sort of information black hole. And 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 that always struck me as insane. You know, how could it be that Greenberg Trorig, a billion dollar law firm, doesn't know everything there is to know about the judge? And, really, and it turns out it's not in any way Greenberg's fault. It's it, every every firm is this way. There's just no meaningful way to get state court litigation data, really, until Gavalytics. And that that's the problem that we aim to solve. We want to eliminate the office email. You know, the, the way it worked at Greenberg, and this is true everywhere else. When a new case comes in, uh, the partner on the case will send an email to the office about the judge. And, you know, say, hey, hey, team, who here knows Judge Jones? You know, and maybe you get a couple anecdotes, and then you you never really think about the judge again. And that always, always, always struck me as wrong, and it is wrong, and and it's wrong because we've we, we here at Gavalytics have proven empirically that judges are are just radically different from one another, and if you know in advance the judge likes granting discovery motions, you can dis, you can steer your discovery to you know in that direction. If you know the judge hates pleading motions, maybe you don't waste your time with motions to strike, or maybe you write them or argue them a little differently. You can use your inside knowledge of the judge to uh, to set you apart. Uh, the the Daily Journal, which is a, um, a a daily legal newspaper here in California, did a, a great uh, cover story about us back in January, and it quoted a partner from one of our clients, um, uh, Arella Manella, is uh, a client of ours, and they they quoted a lawyer from them, a litigation partner 
who um, mentioned that he used Gavalytics in a pitch uh, for business. Uh, it was able to show the general counsel for this particular company uh, all this inside information they had about the judge, and it blew the general counsel away, and they got the case, and and you know in in part because of Gavalytics, and so it's it's a it's a meaningful litigation advantage, and it's also a meaningful uh, business advantage, and so. Um, anyway, just just wanting to have those tools when I was litigating, and but not being able to get them because they didn't exist, it, it's exactly that that led to the start of the company. That's interesting. It's really interesting. So obviously, it's it, the, the tools for litigators, but is it for all litigators, or do you have a, is there certain niches that you focus on? Who's 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 it best suited for? Who's Gavalytics best suited for? Sure. So at the moment, we are a California only product. We do not cover other states or federal courts yet. We are actively working on other jurisdictions outside of California, so, so stay tuned for, for that. But at the moment, it is, it is geared towards litigators um, in California who are in the California Superior Court system. And how can people find out more about the product? Yeah, they can, they can find out more by going to gavalytics.com. They can call our office uh, here, which is 310-314-0179. Uh, we're pretty easy to find. Uh, you can Google Gavalytics. Uh, you can Google uh, California Judicial Analytics. We're, we, we write a lot. You can look at LinkedIn. Uh, there's lots of material we put on LinkedIn. We write a blog. Uh, we're, we're pretty easy to find um, on the Internet. And uh, the name of the company, again, Gavalytics, G A V. E-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com. Okay, let's get back to my talk with Gabe Tenenbaum of Suffolk University School of Law. Since Gabe is in the thick of legal tech education, I asked him whose responsibility it really was to ensure that lawyers keep up on changes to the practice of law that are caused by changes in technology. Is it law schools? Is it law firms? Is it bar associations? His answer, all the above. I think it's a shared responsibility. And, you know, I hope that's not a cop-out of a answer, but I think it's incumbent on law schools to educate students on what's to come and to give them an understanding of what the future of law looks like. So any student who goes into law school and says, I want to be, say, a constitutional law lawyer, someone needs to have a serious talk with them about how many people actually practice constitutional law. And that's a real responsibility because people who are in this field know, you know, there are two dozen people in the country that get a paycheck for doing call. Now you have to know it. There's something, there's something important to that. And I think it's important for people to have that same sort of understanding with innovation and technology. So the way that we've handled it here at the law school is as part of orientation every year, we've made it a, a piece of our program uh, in a couple different ways. One is we actually give very specific demographic information about what people are doing in the law now. And, you know, NALP uh, publishes all sorts of information, and we call it. And we give people a pretty serious, sober view of where the jobs are and where the jobs are going. So we make it a, a focus of, of telling students, this is what's happening in law. And then from there, we try to give students the opportunity to be responsible about it. We have all of these courses for students that are inside the concentration and outside the concentration where they get little bits and pieces of this. And to the extent students aren't in the concentration, I or others in the program will go to other classes and get them engaged in some of this work. So the idea is we don't want any student to walk out of this place without a clear understanding of the direction of, uh, of, of law. And for years, we've, we've um, actually given every incoming student a copy of Suskind's book, Tomorrow's Lawyers, 
Um, and, and that has been sort of one of the ways we've gotten people to it. Now, it's not just law firms and, or uh, law schools and law students. If law firms want people that are going to be successful, if law departments want people that are going to be successful, it's important that they do some training of these folks. So um, that means getting serious about what kind of skills they want people to have when they're there. And, and I don't mean just traditional law skills. I don't just mean the, the legal writing and the ability to do an interview. I mean the technical skills and the ability to be creative. In some ways, that's what our certificate program's about. Um, but it's a big gap, right? I mean, you've got 200 and some odd American law schools, and probably 180 of them have no courses whatsoever in this topic area. Uh, and then of the 20 or so that do, there are probably three, four, five that really have, have put um, – uh, resources into it. So there is a big gap for for um, filling and, and law firms and law departments have some piece of that. And then the final piece, of course, is bar associations. You know, the ABA adopted a tech competency uh, uh, rule and more and more states are adopting that. And it's up to bar associations to make uh, a serious go at making sure lawyers know that, you know, that that has to be followed. So far as I know, Florida is the only state that has a tech CLE requirement. Uh, I think a couple more are on the way. It would be nice if, if, if other states did, but, you know, that's a challenge. Regardless of whether the nudge to learn about legal tech comes from law schools, law firms, or law departments, or bar associations, lawyers have to start somewhere. So I asked Gabe what he would tell a lawyer that came to him and asked where to start. I think the most important thing uh, to do to start is to get a sense for, for what is coming. So what I would do is I would ask them to read a book like Tomorrow's Lawyers um, or a number of blogs or listen to your podcast or do one of the things that gives them a sense of what is to come. And I think the reality for lawyers is um, that they need to be conversant in these things, although they don't need to be experts themselves. And I look at it sort of like, a, you know, I guess the metaphor is becoming a new homeowner. You don't need to know how to do the plumbing or you don't need to know how to put on an addition but you should have some basic idea of the scale of things and the cost of things and how things happen so that when you hire the right person or you hire a person, it's the right person. So uh, a, a lawyer who is um, you know, skeptical about getting personally involved with tech, I'd encourage them to, to at least get an overview so that they can be a part of the conversation when they need to be. So I can get kind of geeky about legal writing. And Gabe, being a legal writing teacher and the director of a legal tech program, I had to ask him if there was any tech out there that was specifically geared to making lawyers better writers. There's some things out there now that get me really excited. So a tool like the case text system. So I don't have any affiliation with them. I know them. I respect them. But you know what they've done is they've built a system so that you can upload your brief and it finds cases that you didn't list. Um that's a really valuable tool. And as more tools like that come online, I think more things will uh, happen. There's a legal writing expert named Ross Guberman, and uh, every legal writing professor in the country probably has a few of his books on legal writing style. And he has a new tool where you upload a brief and it does um, analysis of the brief itself to make sure that the uh, uh, the, the writing is at a sufficient uh, level of complexity for your audience. It's not too complex. It's not too easy. It flows appropriately. And it's essentially a, um, a toolbar add-in on Microsoft Word. So there are little pieces like that, that little by little make the life of legal thinkers, legal writers, lawyers easier. There hasn't been sort of the holy grail tool. There hasn't been sort of the AI, it'll write your brief for you based on your brainwaves tool. I don't know when that's coming. Unfortunately, as Gabe notes, 
If you're a lawyer and don't like legal writing, at this point, you're still out of luck. There's no technology out there that's going to take away that part of your job. In fact, Gabe believes, and so do I, that despite all the hype, we're still some time away from AI and technology to really be able to do heavy lifting in legal work. We're at least one revolutionary step away from AI being able to solve hard problems. And look, this is the problem that Watson has faced with IBM. They've poured in a couple of billion dollars and you know they, they've, they've put dramatic amounts of resources into building a system that does medical diagnosis. And what they've found is like, meh, it's okay. Uh, and it may be that okay is good enough in a place where you don't have access to an MD, right? So imagine yourself, you know, you're in the military and you're some removed position and you don't have access to someone who can actually do the full workup. If you had the ability to to very quickly come to a diagnosis that was as good as a pretty bad licensed doctor, that's better than you're otherwise going to do. But if you can get a person to a hospital, you're better off getting them to a hospital. And that's despite IBM's billions of dollars. You probably gathered by now that Gabe's a pretty busy dude and has his hand in a lot of legal and educational related things. And he's quite passionate about those things. But not only is Gabe passionate about legal education, he even created an app that helps law students learn the law. The website is spacedrepetition.com, and there's a better way for people to learn, which has actually been proven to death over about 100 years. And the reason that people are just hearing about it now is because until we all have these little computers in our pockets that we call iPhones, there's no easy way to do it. But the idea here is that it's very predictable when you will forget information that you've learned. Everyone has this, it's called the forgetting curve, and it can actually be charted. And we know that the average person, if they learn 10 facts, there's, say, a 33% chance that they'll remember in a, a, a day later and a 25% a week later and a 20% a month later, if that's just, if you remembered um, 10 facts. So the way space repetition works is it predicts when you would forget and then reminds you a moment before to study that piece of information. So this has been done in lab settings across 50 or 100 different concepts, everything from learning math to learning foreign language to learning uh, for medical education. And what I did was I adapted it for law. So I, I got with several professors who are content experts in specific areas uh, tested on the bar. And we created 600 plus flashcards that correspond to the most tested topics. And then we put them on the space repetition platform. So the idea is a student who wants to get ready for the bar will go. They'll learn this black letter law. And then rather than just do it like they would a physical flashcard and forget about it or try to remember to cram at some other point, they get a daily email. Hey, come back and study this card. Come back and study that card. And each card has a, a separate application of the algorithm behind it because the students rate their knowledge. So a student will look at the front of a card, try to remember the answer, flip the virtual card, read the answer, and then rate how well they knew it. And that tells the algorithm, okay, this is the next time you have to give it to the person. The, the upshot, the important thing for people to know is that people remember between three and four times as much if they use a system. Um, and the idea is to deliver the best content and also to give the best algorithm behind it. So it's been really a cool program. I mean, we've got about 5,000 active users. Uh, students can also create their own cards on top of the ones that the um, professors created for them. And there are 135,000 or so individual cards that are keyed to schools, to professors, to topics. So if you are at you know, Chicago, Kent, and you have Professor Jones for con law, you can go into the system and find, oh, there are 500 cards that students have created that are specifically keyed to that class. Um, and it's been dramatic. So we've had a couple of schools that have um, 
offered subscriptions to their entire graduating class on the condition that they'd use it. And most of the students, of course, say, yeah, of course, I'd love, I'd love to use that. Uh, and a few students say, no, I'm going to do something different. What we found is that at one school, the students who took advantage of spacedrepetition.com passed at a rate 19.2% higher than those that didn't. And, and at a different school in the same state, it was 21% higher. So we've seen, you know, empirically uh, uh, testable, improvable results from it. It's been really cool. So it's it's used for both for the bar exam and also for law school courses. Absolutely. And incidentally, you know, one of the things that interests me is using this sort of information in the practice of law too. So let's imagine you're uh, a new DA and there's ten cases that you have to remember to deliver a bail argument. It could be used as a training tool. And then the other thing is that there are interesting ways to modify it. Let's say you're a partner at a law firm and you meet a lot of people uh, and and you want to just have them in your your memory banks. You could very easily attach a photograph of that person and three facts about them into the system. And every day you do two or three cards. And ultimately what happens is you, you have this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of thousands of people because you just spend a couple of minutes a day on it. It doesn't take very long. 10 minutes a day is, is the max we ever ask of anyone. So Gabe is doing some pretty cool and important stuff, but we ended the interview talking about what might be his crowning achievement to date. One of the things that I try to do is I try to get my hands dirty. You know, nowadays I do a lot of administrative work and I do a lot of running around and going to meetings and meeting interesting people, but um, I don't get to be hands-on as much as I want. So I build stuff. So I built the Lionel Hutspot for, you know, the, the Simpsons lawyer, and it it basically tweets out a Lionel Hutz lawyer quote every uh, couple of hours. I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law-talking guy. The lawyer. Right. And uh, it's been pretty cool. We've got another one that uh, tweets out new laws every time that they are uh, uh, come into force. So, you know, the, the president signs it and, and within a few minutes it, it uh, releases the, the text of the law. And we built a number with our students, too. Stuff that actually hopefully is interesting to people, but at the very least gets the student involved in using technology to to do something that's um that's gonna you know uh, 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 help other people see opportunities. So that's all we have for today. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to subscribe, you can check us out on any major podcast platform such as iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher.com. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co. Hope you tune in next time where we sit down with Zach Abramowitz. And among other things, we talk about law firms developing tech. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal. Technically Legal.